So let me guess, you were doing things waterfall and that didn't work. And then you tried agile and well, that's not really working either. So now you're mixing and matching. You've got a scoop of agile and a scoop of waterfall and you're trying to find some sprinkles to put on top. Well, keep listening to today's podcast about metagility. And you might just learn a thing or two about how an agile playbook can be used to combine the best of both worlds. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ben Ashton, founder of the Digital Project Manager. Welcome to the DPM podcast. We're on a mission to help project managers succeed, to help people who manage projects deliver better. We're here to help you take your project game to the next level. Check out the digitalprojectmanager.com to learn about our training and resources we offer through membership. This podcast is brought to you by Clarison, the leader in enterprise project and portfolio management software. Visit clarison.com to learn more. So today I'm joined by David Bishop and Dr. David Bishop is a technologist, he's a consultant, he's a researcher, entrepreneur and instructor with more than 25 years experience in telco, transportation, government and utilities and he's the CEO and founder of Agile Works. Uh, you can check that out, agile-works.com, and they're a firm that provides program and project management software tools, training, and consulting services. And he's the author of Metagility, Managing Agile Development for Competitive Advantage. So thank you so much for joining us today, David. Thank you for having me. And I want to dive into this whole uh, idea of building a framework from from nothing. Can you tell us a bit about your background and and how you decided that hey, the world needs a new uh, frame it. What's your what's your kind of experience that that led you to that point? Right. Well, I've I've been in the technology development business for about 25 years and uh, mostly as a systems architect and systems engineer uh, developing solutions with new technologies and and uh, in the IT business as well as in the IoT business and cellular and telecom and all that stuff, as you mentioned earlier. About 10 years ago, I started working with a company that was deep into industrial IoT. And one of the things that they were trying desperately to do was to adopt agile methodologies. Right. And, and the reason for that is because their customers were asking for it because right. they, were, they were in a new industry. And they were in this new industry where well, relatively new industry, new technology, I should say. It wasn't a new industry, but it was a, a new technology they were trying to integrate into this industry. And uh, there were a lot of competitors out there who were uh, developing this new smart grid uh, technology with uh, all the different uh, RF communication and, and the, the grid that was behind all this technology. And so they tried several times to adopt Agile because it was critical for them to try and use Agile to get their products out to market as quickly as possible. They tried several times, hired lots of highly paid consultants, uh, and just failed miserably uh, time after time. And I was a part of this. I was helping this organization develop these products and also helping them try and adopt Agile in the process as well. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a different way to do this. Why is it that so many of these very smart consultants that we bring in uh, have, have had so much trouble here? And what I realized was that... Uh, you know, unfortunately, Agile has has had, a, although great success, and it certainly is a great uh, idea, it has had some shortcomings in, in many ways. And one of those has had issues with distributed teams, large teams, but also uh, very complex development environments and complex 
or complicated products. Uh, those can be huge challenges for uh, people trying to adopt agile methodology in, a, in its purest form. Definitely. So, I mean, tell us a bit about your experience involved in that project. I'm curious as to kind of on the ground, I can understand kind of big picture, what the kind of the challenges were with an agile implementation, uh, but kind of on the ground day to day, what did that look like? How was, how was that problematic in kind of the day to day of being involved in the project? What are the kind of, what were the warning signs to you for, I guess, knowing that something was, wasn't quite right? Well, there was a tremendous resistance with some of the teams. Uh, and I'm not just saying uh, the off shucks kind of resistance. There was really hardcore resistance and uh, complaints that the process just wasn't working and couldn't work. And, and the reason for this is because this was an embedded systems environment. In other words, because they were developing IoT or industrial IoT products, these products were not just software. These products were devices. Uh, and devices are typically composed of embedded systems where you have hardware, firmware, and software developed by different tracks, uh, different teams, sometimes different departments, sometimes different companies. But at some point, all three of those components have to be tested and released as one cohesive product. And that's what this company was doing. And that's what makes this context so interesting today because that's where all your innovation is happening today. Years ago, when the manifesto first came out, 15, 20 years ago, it was all about software. But today it's not just about software. It's about devices, smart devices, smart meters, smart uh, cars, your cell phone. Everything is an embedded systems device today, really. And so those types of companies developing those kinds of products have the hardest time with agility because of the complexity. And so from a day-to-day basis, we were working with we were, the, the consultants we were working with were trying to say, okay, you know, we've got your software teams doing two-week sprints and, and they're doing daily stand-ups, but we can't seem to get your hardware guys to do the same thing. They don't think it's necessary. Right. And uh, the firmware guys were having the same problem. They were like, well, you know, this doesn't seem to work very well for us. It doesn't make sense. And it was true because the software teams were working much faster. They were developing, they could develop in iterations, but uh, it didn't necessarily work too well with the hardware teams. They didn't work that way. Their products had like a 12 to 18 month release cycle. So they, you know, it, it just, it took a long time to uh, uh, assimilate uh, a chipset into the hardware and to thoroughly test it. And, and, and then of course, you know, most of most organizations who, uh, develop embedded systems. Embedded systems have a tendency to be in industries where there's a lot more regulation, uh, regulatory compliance, government oversight, and things like that. If you think about, you know, if you think about smart meters and, and, and power utilities or smart cars or uh, an avionic system within an aircraft, you can imagine that because the stakes are so much higher with respect to potential lives lost or potential catastrophic failures and what those failures could cost, uh, you know, it's, they, they have to meet a much embedded systems typically have to meet a much higher bar of quality and, uh, performance and, uh, uh, success, I should say, than a typical software application or an e-commerce website or something like that, which is right. where most of your agile, uh, which were the industries that assimilated agile methodologies, uh, the most, the quickest and the earliest. 
So, yeah, if you want to read more about the genesis of Metagility, you can check out the post on the digitalprojectmanager.com where he chronicles uh, how this evolved in the story of creating the book. Uh, so rather than diving deeper into that story, I want to dive into this actual framework and see if we can find some nuggets that we can apply to our projects. And I think this is highly relevant because I think for many of us, we have tried elements of waterfall. We do things sequentially because that's what seems to make most sense because of the stakeholders that we have, because of the way the our engagements are structured. Uh, but then we also try some agile stuff in terms of the themes we apply. We work collaboratively. Uh, we work iteratively. Uh, so there's bits and pieces that we pull. Um, there's there's the philosophy that we are kind of bought into with, okay, let's iterate, let's deliver value often, let's build, let's test, let's learn, but then actually we have to work sequentially. So I want to talk about metagility and how we can apply that to our projects. And the the reality that we've been talking about here is that agile methodologies are popular. They are widely accepted as the, the best way for managing software development. But what actually agile methodologies mean is wide open to interpretation. And as we've been talking about, represent a real challenge for most companies. So this hybrid approach, although it's not often lauded as uh, the best solution is actually the de facto uh, result for many people as they're trying to cobble together different frameworks and ways of working with the constraints of the organization that we've just been talking about. We've been talking about, hey, hardware takes the build cycle is longer than software and uh, the middleware takes, again, is, is somewhere in the middle there. So building things, we can't release things at the same cadence. And that's the kind of challenge we have as well, sometimes with web development where, sure, UX and design can can process things quickly, but development takes much longer. So I want to talk about really the problem that you see and kind of let's dig into the, the I guess, the performance and the limitations of agile methods that you talk about in your book. When you When you see the limitations, I mean, we've been talking about the cadence and, and the release cycles and how that works. But can you dig a bit deeper into these limitations that you see with the current agile methods out there? I mean, let's compare with at a, a high level safe and a, a kind of a low level tactical level scrum. What do you see as the, the limitations of these? Well, I would say when you're talking about those frameworks like safe or scrum, uh, for example, uh, Kanban, and there's a host of others, right? There's DSDM, there's LESS, there's uh, DA or Disciplined Agile, which was recently purchased by PMI. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, I love uh, buying a framework. That's nice, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, it, they try to attack the problem in, uh, in different ways from different directions. You know, there's been a lot of, when it comes to uh, the, the reasoning for assimilating Agile methodologies, I think... Uh, many people often get it a little bit wrong or somewhat skewed. There's been a lot of push uh, these days or a lot of focus these days on adopting Agile because uh, uh, it makes your teams work better together or it makes you a better leader or uh, it produces, it increases efficiencies in some way. And that's all, that's all great and good. But uh, the real purpose behind Agile was, it was about competition. It's about being number one in your market. If you think about, you know, the Agile Manifesto was a derivative of lean manufacturing. It was a software application for lean manufacturing uh, techniques that came out of the Toyota production system based on that, that paper that was written back in 1979 by those two Japanese researchers. 
And what did that do for Toyota? Well, it took Toyota from being a company that made tin can cars to being one of the premier or the premier automaker in the world, possibly. And so the whole idea behind agility is to try and duplicate that kind of success to become number one in your market. And many of these frameworks have, in my opinion, have sort of forgotten that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, you, when you look at SAFE, it focuses at, at the enterprise level, at, at the 30,000 foot level, because it's focusing on uh, agilizing every aspect of your company, uh, whether it's uh, whether it's your HR department or your legal department. The idea is that you that you try to agilize every aspect of your company and your operations in hopes that this will provide some incremental improvements over time. And it, it also focuses uh, a little bit too much. Uh, to some extent, it's sort of uh, it process. I if I, it's probably not a word processitizes, but it's. <laughs> It sort of uh, overanalyzes uh, and, and basically water. You remember, uh, you know, years ago before you had user stories and before you had living documentation produced by collaboration tools, you had these long SOP type documentations that uh, we used to use to support mainframe systems and legacy systems 20, 20 years ago. And, and in some ways, SAFE reminds me of that because it produces these long, these uh, very excessive procedures and processes for handling uh, different aspects of your business in an agile way. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but it's sort of, it's the antithesis of what agile is really all about in some ways. Right. Uh, and uh, what Metagility does is it, uh, and of course Scrum focuses at the team level. It's a set of rituals that helps you manage your teams, which is, is great. Actually Scrum uh, and many of these frameworks can be used together. They don't necessarily conflict with each other. Uh, you can use Scrum, you can use Kanban, you can use Metagility and Safe within the same organization. But what Metagility is going to focus on, whereas SAFE may focus on the enterprise or uh, Scrum is going to focus on teams, Kanban is going to focus down at the process level, work in progress, for example. Uh, Metagility is going to focus on the product development engine. Uh, It's going to focus on uh, your your product management, your project management, your uh, development and testing teams how those requirements are developed and interpreted by the teams, how the product is tested and how you're going to get it out to market and how you collaborate with your customer uh, so that that product meets uh, their expectations and uh, that uh, you have the highest quality possible. It's all, if you want to win the race, you have to, uh, if you're building a car to win a drag race, for example, you're going to focus on the engine, the transmission and the drivetrain. You're not going to worry about power windows or air conditioning. And so in many ways, I think some of these other frameworks, they do that. They focus too much on the periphery instead of exactly what's needed and necessary to become number one in your market. And that's what Metagility does is it, uh, it uh, based on the research, we've gleaned out. There were a certain number of uh, case studies who managed to acquire what I call a super agile adaptation. They managed to leverage agility to become number one in their market. And so Metagility captures everything those companies did right and attempts to productize it so that uh, other organizations can duplicate the same results. Okay. So, I mean, you describe it as a comprehensive approach for managing a new and highly effective breed of agility. So is what is metagility? Is it a delivery framework? Is it a methodology? I've seen it also described as a playbook. Um, how would How would you describe it? I would describe it as, a, as more of a framework. Um, okay. You know, it's uh, it, it's a it takes you through the process of you know the first step of metagility, for example, 
uh, is to determine what type of agile adaptation that you want. Um, uh, well, actually, I could take, take a step back. Uh, the first, the book begins by teaching you how to think differently in terms of uh, using research-based and scientific methodologies to make business decisions. There's a whole section in there about that. And there's also a section in there about how the Agile Manifesto has changed based on findings in the research. So that's, that's some of the things that it's begin, it starts off with. But when we, we get to the Agile transformation part of it, one of the first things that we talk about is, well, how should you adopt, what type of Agile adaptation or implementation should you use? Should it be a pure Agile implementation? Should it be a hybrid approach? Or should you just stick for what with waterfall? In some cases, maybe you should. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that there's a whole host of research out there. Uh, peer-reviewed business research has been performed by PhD-level experts to answer that kind of question. And in many cases, most consultants don't even know that exists, let alone use it. And there's a uh, researcher out there named Barlow who published a paper on how to make that decision. And uh, I included that in my book. There's a, a, a chart in there where it talks about uh, the type of Agile implementation that you choose should be based on is a function of uh, the complexity of the dependencies and interdependencies in your product and organization and also the size of your teams. And so that's very important. And in many of these uh, case studies, like with embedded systems, where you have complex products uh, and large distributed teams where there's a tremendous amount of uh, interdependencies and dependencies and a lot of interplay between these different uh, 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 components, uh, that kind of complexity means that you've got to do something a little bit different. You can't have a, uh, uh, taking a pure agile approach across the organization is typically not going to work. Uh, you're going to do something differently and a hybrid approach. If it's done purposefully can produce fantastic results. Now, oftentimes hybrid approaches have a negative, uh, uh, uh perception in the industry because when we think of hybrid, we think of, Oh, agile or, or scrum or fall or we, we in our minds we, we think of a, a failed implementation right but yeah. that's, that was that's by accident uh, if you <laughs> that's what happens when an agile transformation goes wrong but if you have a purposeful approach for a hybrid agile implementation and you know you're doing it based on uh, scientific reasoning and, and research and you know that the way that you're going about it is also based uh, on scientific methodology and research then you know you're going in the right direction for your organization so in terms of this framework, can you can you describe for anyone who hasn't read the book how it actually works and what the components of this framework are? Right. So uh, in the book, I have a, a huge chart which uh, outlines all those different pieces, uh, and it's uh, I think it's I think it's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> but uh, essentially. Uh, you know, the, the first part of, of Metagility is, is making that decision, you know, right? What what type of uh, transformation approach should you undertake? And how do you and, ascertain and, that? Well, that's by uh, using the, uh, uh, I mentioned earlier, the uh, Barlow's diagram, which I have in the, in the, uh, uh, in the book, which is a, a paper that describes how you can make that decision. It's a wonderful piece of research. And it's essentially a function of uh, the size of your teams and also uh, the complexity of your products, uh, the, the, the level of interplay or interdependencies uh, between your teams. Uh, and that's essentially what that's speaking to is the complexity of your products. So you have to figure out, you know, how many interdependencies or dependencies do I have 
between different teams or different tracks of development to create my products or to create one product. Uh, and that level of complexity is a, is a big guide to telling you whether you should maybe take more of a hybrid approach as opposed to just a pure agile approach. And right. so uh, the hybrid approach, what is that? Well, metagility includes uh, uh, steps on how to uh, assimilate agile. Diff- what, basically, it outlines what that hybrid approach is. Uh, that's part of what it does. So, uh, for example, your software teams may have uh, two-week sprints. They may have daily stand-ups, but your your firmware teams may have 30-day sprints. They may have stand-ups once a week. And uh, your, 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 your hardware teams who operate with a, a slower, longer uh, cycle time, 12 to 18 months typically, may, may not have uh, scrums or sprints per se. Uh, they may operate on more of a waterfall basis. But uh, they use certain techniques like rapid prototyping, for example, to try and keep up with the other uh, other teams so they can provide them with whatever platforms or testing materials they need to keep moving so that there's no blockers. The whole point, of course, is to maintain flow throughout the whole process. That's very important. Um, and so uh, Metagility outlines what that looks like. Uh, it, it outlines how the different teams adopt or adapt uh, agile or waterfall concepts. Uh, and, and the waterfall, the gates, the stage gating, for example, uh, it is adapted to this hybrid methodology by using it as a sort of a check and balance. So uh, in a hybrid approach, uh, the stage gating can be a way to serve as a check and balance on all these different tracks that are moving at different speeds to help make sure they're all in sync. Uh, to put it bluntly, or to summarize it. Uh, and the methodology goes on to outline the different metrics you should use, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, and also the, the types of interactions that you should use. You know, in, in Agile, we hear a lot about, uh, you know, people in interactions over tools and processes, right, or something like that. And, and that's yeah. – what, no one ever tells you well, what are those interactions supposed to be. Well, in Metagility, we break that up into six well-defined categories. Based on our most successful case studies, we break it up into six categories of interactions and, and outline what those interactions are and how to implement them and how to manage them. And this is based on, again, the case studies that have managed to do this the best way. And so it becomes a, a very detailed playbook for how to manage this hybrid Agile implementation. And then another, go ahead. Yeah. And so how do you determine that proper mix of those agile and waterfall characteristics? Because I think by default, you know, people generally respond to change negatively. So um, as we're trying to increase our agility or metagility organizationally, how do you determine that what that mix looks like and what is, uh, state of where status quo is acceptable and where evolution or <laughs> revolution needs to, to happen within the process. Right. Uh, I think it's, uh, it goes back to uh, using a scientific methodology and uh, engaged scholarship research or engaged business research, as many of us call it. Uh, that's how you, you're going to get the best answer. You know, all too often, uh, when people talk about doing a little bit of research or they try and figure out how to solve these kinds of problems, they will uh, use their intuition or they will uh, you know, try and make decisions based on best practices or based on uh, interviewing people and trying to get consensus. 
there's nothing entirely wrong with that. Uh, and, and, you know, we make decisions that way in business all the time. But, you know, when it comes to something as challenging and as difficult as an agile transformation or DevOps transformation, digital transformation, which in many cases are all related, it takes a stronger medicine. It's time to call in the doctor at that point because, yeah. uh, you know, you can treat yourself at home for a while, but eventually you're going to get sick enough to where that's not going to help. You're going to be in the hospital or something. <laughs> um, and so uh, that's that's why, you know, that's why I saw this. The reason I saw this pattern of failure early on when I started uh, tackling this problem, because many of the consultants or experts we were working with were, were trying to tackle this as they would any other business problem. You know, okay, this is this is what worked at my last company. So, gosh, it's got to work here, but it's not. How come? Well, you know, if you if you look at business research, especially business research within the CIS realm, computer information systems, or uh, it's uh, it's not that simple uh, because the research tells us that uh, CIS environments, computer science environments, or information systems environments, whatever you want to call them, are highly contextual. They they differ widely from company to company, and what works in one place is not always going to work everywhere else. But you have to apply, if you apply scientific methodologies to, uh, to doing your research, uh, like an interpretive case study, for example, then you can do what's called generalization uh, within certain, uh, certain parameters, and you can glean out what will translate from one organization to the next. There are certain things that won't, but with, by doing enough case studies and uh, applying some of the concepts of interpretive uh, case study technique and ethnographies and that sort of thing, uh, you can figure out what is going to be generalizable from company to company and organization to organization that you know is going to work based on your search. Right. It, takes, so, it takes a while to figure that out, though. <laughs> yeah. So this isn't a one-size-fits-all framework. This is a customizable framework. Um but I guess the challenge with customizability is that how do you know uh, or how do you evaluate whether or whether or not an implementation is true metagility or not? How do you how do you evaluate its success? Oh, that's a good question. That's an excellent segue. <laughs> so part of metagility also includes uh, the theory of agile vorticity. And uh, in addition to the hybrid agile approach and and all the findings around uh, interactions and what those are all about and how you adopt Agile with different teams. The other component of Metagility includes the theory of Agile vorticity, which came out of the research. And this was based, based on what we call a qualitative grounded theory analysis. And this Agile vorticity concept answers the question of how Agile you are or how Agile your organization is. And that's the big question in this industry and has been for a long time. Okay, we're doing all this work. We're, we're doing all this work to uh, uh, you know, implement an agile transformation. But how do we know it's done us any good? How do we know where we stand? Right. And how do we know if we want to get a little bit better? Then how do we do that? And how do we know that that's working? There's been no way to really measure agility. And so that's what Agile Vorticity does. And it's a, a fairly complex concept that I go into in detail in the book, and it's based on some of the research papers. It's, but uh, it, it answers that question, and it cracks that nut 
wide open. And that's one thing that I'm, one reason I'm so excited about it is because that's been a, a gap in this industry for quite some time. So Metagility, uh, you know, provides a way to measure that success. And so in terms of the organizations that you've worked with that have implemented your framework, what what impact have you seen? Have you seen, obviously, we, we started at the beginning talking about, hey, this is really about becoming the number one player in the industry um, and becoming more competitive. So what impacts have you seen? Um, and I guess by your kind of vorticity quotient, or I don't know how that's measured, what the units are, but how does... Um, what what has the impact been? Can you talk through some some stories of that? Sure. You know, I'd say that uh, many of our case studies uh, were in the embedded systems market because, like I said, that's in my opinion, that's where the coolest market is right now, the hottest markets, and also the most challenging, and it's the most difficult case study. And so, the companies that adopted metagility concepts have managed to, in most cases, become uh, market leaders. Uh, either number one in their market or pretty close to it. And, and what that usually translates to is market share, uh, getting more devices on the ground than anybody else, getting more uh, smart devices in people's hands than their competitors. Uh, and that's, that's what the success looks like. Uh, it's, uh, you know, especially when you're in new markets, whether you're a big company or a startup, you know, whether you're a big company with a new product line, a new technology, or a startup with something new, uh, the key to longevity is getting that early critical market share before your competitors do. And that means assimilating innovative technology and getting it out to the market before anyone else. And Agile is the best way to do that, uh, specifically Metagility, I think. And um, that's what our most successful case studies have done, is they've managed to reduce their cycle times, as much as possible, yet uh, maintain the same kind of quality that they've wanted to maintain, customer satisfaction, and get uh, these innovative products out to market and grab that early critical market share before many of the competitors. Right. Uh, where you've seen metagility not work or the implementation come, you know, hit some snags, What? why has that been? I, I know you talk about... Um, you know, the importance of the executive in this process. Uh, but what are some of the t challenges you've seen in meta-agility implementations? How, how and where does it go wrong if it, if it goes wrong? I think it's uh, in two specific places, and you touched on it uh, earlier. And that's, it's, that's going to be true with any Agile framework is, you know, if, uh, uh, if you don't have executive buy-in and support, then you're not going to get very far. Uh, and that's critical. You have to have exec yeah. you have to have executive buy-in and support on any type of transformation, whether it's digital transformation, agile transformation, what have you. It starts from the top, uh, and they have to understand what it's all about, what the goals are that you're trying to achieve. And of course, that's up to to me or, or you as the uh, agilist to put forth a, a compelling business case so that they understand how it's going to impact the bottom line and why they're doing this. That it's not just about making people happy or putting flowers in people's hair. It's about being competitive. It's about how impacting their bottom line is going to improve their profits and it's going to improve their bonus at the end of the year. And that's very critical uh, to be able to build that compelling business case and get that executive buy-in. 
The second reason that I, I've seen uh, agile transformations, and it could be metagility, but it, it, this, this is uh, typical, I think, in many agile transformation efforts, is poor requirements management. Right. And I think, I think this is an important one. You know, all too often when we take on an agile transformation, we, we're focusing on the development teams and the testing teams. So we got to make sure these guys are, are, do, are, are, are we got to make sure the, the scrum teams are all set up and organized. And we got to get on two week sprints and we got to do our standups, every, all that good stuff. But there's very little focus on the requirements uh, and uh, the business analysts or what we often call in the agile world product owners. There's very little emphasis on helping those people change how they develop requirements. Because you see, there's when you undergo an agile transformation, usually uh, your business analyst becomes the product owner, typically. And uh, you have to change the way you develop requirements in an agile world versus a waterfall world. Uh, and many people don't. And I'll illustrate that to you. So, for example, if I'm in a waterfall environment and I'm a business analyst and I'm trying to develop requirements, a lot of mm-hmm. times people use the word gather requirements. Right. And in the agile world, you don't gather requirements. You develop requirements. That's a big difference. What uh, a business analyst will often try to do is they'll try to uh, – a good, a, good uh, a comment that I often hear from BAs is, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to miss something. Well, wait a minute. In an agile world, you're never afraid you're going to miss something because there's always another iteration to work it in. Right. But you see, in, in, what a, in the waterfall world, you, you've got that well-defined scope. You've got that iron triangle, that scope and cost, and you're worried about scope creep. And by gosh, you've got to make sure that you gather all the requirements you think you're going to need because you don't want to have to change it later. And so BAs typically will try and brainstorm requirements instead of working closely with the customer to define and build them. And what happens in that case is they, they build more requirements, more requirements, more requirements. They define their, their success or they, they think they're doing a good job based on the number of requirements they build. <laughs> yeah. And it becomes impossible to prioritize all these requirements. And you start stuffing the releases. You start uh, building features that are underutilized. And you, your technical debt goes out of control. Your technical debt just goes through the roof. And that is how agile transformations fail. And, and you can make any framework, including metagility, fail if you don't uh, uh, change the way that you develop requirements. And, of course, I have a class on it, and I talk about that in the book, that uh, you know, uh, try to tra- I try to train BAs on being real agile product owners and say, you know, it's not just about learning the agile process. You've got to think differently about how you're building requirements. You've got to work collaboratively with the customer and use a top-down approach to decomposing requirements based on customer need. And you have to avoid brainstorming. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I've been there all too many times where you uh, that requirements gathering process, uh, if you if you treat it as requirement requirement gathering. Uh, it can just last for days or, or weeks as you dig into all these requirements. And there's always more things that you can, that you can add there. And it's a, uh, it's how long is a piece of string? But if I'm new to metagility and, um, you know, this sounds like a sensible approach of marrying the realities of different cadence of development or different cadences that different teams work with and, Seeing that, seeing that they can work together. But what's one way that um, you would say 
an organization can apply metagility? Uh, what's what's the what's that kind of first step to applying metagility within an organization um, that's going to benefit the the biggest result? I think that uh, you're going to have to. Um, I, I think the first thing you need to do is establish new customer relationships. You know, uh, and you know, and I think one of the uh, uh, tenets of the Agile Manifesto talks about customer collaboration over contract negotiation. But the the what we found today, based on the research, is that. Contract negotiation and customer collaboration are really one and the same. It's one and the same process. And this negotiation process happens at all levels of the organization. It's not just a bunch of lawyers and executives sitting in a room with the client and having them sign a piece of paper or sign a contract. That negotiation is an ongoing process that happens uh, between stakeholders throughout the company, your product, product managers, product owners, project managers, your development teams, your scrum teams, and a host of, uh, of stakeholders within the, uh, the client company. And you have to uh, establish that relationship with your client, that it's going to be collaborative, that the client is going to be, the client is going to help you test, especially if you want to get an innovative product out to market quickly. Uh, your, your client's going to need to be a part of that process. And, you know, one of the, uh, 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 you know, uh, with Metagility, what we focus on when we, we talk to executives, we tell them it's all about, it's not about a plan, it's about a vision. And our most successful case studies, uh, they, they had a vision for where they wanted to go in the marketplace. And they made decisions with respect to which customers they were going to work with and which customers they weren't going to work with. They had to make that strategic decision. They didn't just sit back and say, well, we've got to take on every business that comes our way, every customer that comes our way. We're not going to turn anyone away because we're so focused on trying to make as much money as possible. Mm-hmm. But that's not that's not how to win. Uh, some customers had to be turned away by our most successful case studies because they were not willing to participate in this process. They weren't willing to be a collaborative client. And, and, and participate in that high level of collaboration that's so critical to long-term success. And that's yeah. very important. So finding the right clients and establishing that very strong collaborative relationship is probably the first step. And, and, and figuring out what that vision is for where you want to go and selecting the clients that are going to take you there. Yeah, I think there's a wise words of advice. I think so often we uh, can take the approach that, Hey, we'll, we'll just take whatever comes in the door. But, uh, ultimately, if we want to really deliver value, uh, to our end users, to our clients, then we need the right engagement model that's going to encourage that collaborative approach. And so that engagement model and establishing trust there so that we, we can say, Hey, do you know what? We don't know exactly what we're going to do, but we're going to collaborate on this together so that we get to the best result. I think it's ultimately going to lead to the client receiving the best value rather than debating over the, um, the black and white of the contract. Uh, much better to have a, a simple engagement where the trust exists and trust uh, enables that collaboration to occur. So thank you so much, David, for joining us today and talking to us a bit about metagility. That's been really helpful. Thank you very much. 
And I'd love to know what you think. I wonder if you've read the book, Metagility. If you have, let us know what you think in the comments. If you haven't yet, uh, we'll put a link in the uh, transcript so you can check that out. Um, but David, if people want to find out more about Metagility um, and, and your book, obviously we'll put a, a link to the book on Amazon. But where can they go to find more about you? Uh, well, certainly you can Google the word Metagility and it lights up with all kinds of resources. But you can also go to uh, AgileWorks.com, A-G-I-L-E-W-O-R-X.com and look at our company and what we're trying to do. We also have some courses available uh, that we're offering. Uh, and of course, those courses are typically face-to-face and they have been postponed until the fall <laughs> right now, right. Uh, starting in August through November. But we're hoping to still have those on site, but we may transition to some virtual courses. But you can find the latest up-to-date schedule on metagility.technology. So you can go to that website. You can uh, find out what the latest schedule is and sign up for courses. Uh, and also, you can reach out to me, David, at agileworks.com, A-G-I-L-E-W-R-X.com. I'm always interested to hear from people, uh, and uh, I'm checking email all the time. So Good stuff. Well, thanks very much, David. And if you want to learn more and get ahead in your work, come and join us. Join our tribe with DPM membership. Head to the digitalprojectmanager.com forward slash membership and you'll get access to our Slack team where we are having discussions about things just like this. Access to our templates, workshops, AMA sessions, office hours, ebooks and more. And if you like what you heard today, please subscribe and stay in touch on the digitalprojectmanager.com. But until next time, thanks so much for listening.